Well, good afternoon, church. Thank you for once again gathering with us here today to open God's Word. It's really a wonderful day to gather around God's Word because we get to enter into a new portion of the book of Acts today, a portion in which we haven't been to before and really a portion in which hasn't been brought up leading up to Acts chapter 20 where we find ourselves Uh, Really, what we have here in Acts chapter 20 uh, is the uh, structure of the church life. And if you were with us a couple of uh, weeks uh, prior, for two weeks in a row, we looked at really just the function of the church life, what it looked like, and how the church gathered around together in love for one another. Well, Acts chapter 20, as we move into verse 17 and into verse 38, what we're going to find is that still we see the church functioning with one another, but specifically a certain part of the church is functioning together. Namely, the elders of the church at Ephesus are having the final speech of the Apostle Paul being delivered to them. And in this speech, there is just a plethora of instruction that we ourselves can apply to our lives as we come together as the First Baptist Church of Hollywood. Really, I was thinking about all the themes that I saw here in in, uh, Acts chapter 20, and and we're just going to look up to verse 19 today from starting at verse 17, but the narrative goes all the way to verse 38. And just the themes there that are present is just an endless amount. You have instruction for the elders, instruction for the church, the way in which the elders are to care for the body of Christ, how the church can love one another, what God's will is for the church, how the elders can suffer well in their ministry for the Lord. There's just a plethora of themes that are dominating this section here. But really, as we're going to come to find over the next few weeks as we look at this portion of God's Word, is that Paul is giving his final address to the elders, telling them that it is of utmost necessity that just as a shepherd cares for its own flock by feeding and protecting it from wild wolves, so also the elder is to feed and protect God's flock both through His Word and also in guarding them against the false teachers that are going to come into their midst. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, but for our focus here today, what we're really going to see up to verse 24 uh, in its totality is Paul just giving really just these final instructions to the elders by showing them his pattern that he laid out in his ministry unto the Lord there. As these elders are gathered before Paul, and we'll read it in just a moment, Paul really gives to them just these, uh, these, this pattern of his ministry, what his ministry was like in order that they could emulate his pattern for ministry just as Paul himself was emulating Christ. And before you begin to say, well, I'm not an elder of the church, I'm not a pastor of the church, what's in this for me? Well, in that Paul has patterned a ministry life for these elders, Paul is not just hoping that they would just take this unto themselves, but rather that they would take this back to the church in order that the church could learn from the example of Paul to pattern their own ministry, their ministry unto the Lord in whatever capacity that might be in, in a way in which is pleasing to God. And so we see this again just beginning at verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 17, and we're just going to read up to verse 19 for our purposes today. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We'll stop there and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful time we have to gather before your word. We know that there is much instruction in this passage before us, even as we just consider just a few portions of it. God, I pray that our hearts would be attuned to your word in order that you would be able to guide us through your spirit to be able to uh, see the pattern that Paul lays out in ministry and apply it to our own lives as well, too. 
God, we know that uh, you have called each of us to particular works here as the body of Christ and, and in various capacities as you've gifted us in various ways. Lord, I pray that as we have our hearts attuned to just the work in which you are laying out for us to do, to do here at the First Baptist Church of Hollywood, that from the example that is laid out here before the Apostle Paul, that that example would be instructive to us in order that through the same Spirit who has led Paul, uh, we also can be led by your Spirit who dwells in each one of us. God, help us to see this in its reality today in order that we would be able to, as your church, serve, uh, uh, serve in the capacities in which that you have called for us to serve, especially as it relates to serving you, God, for you are our Lord, our Savior, and our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Acts chapter 20 has really surprisingly served as a pivotal, a pivotal portion of my own life for understanding the church. As I have been going through Acts chapter 20, and you know, we looked at verses 1 to verse 16 for two weeks, and as we go into uh, these next few weeks here, Acts chapter 20 is a pivotal, a pivotal portion of the Scriptures which should govern our own lives as the church. Really practically speaking, and this is just review from a couple of weeks that we've looked at in Acts chapter 20 verse 1 to 16, practically speaking, how our love for one another can be shown. Given that as the church of Jesus Christ we're going to be gathering together, we need to gather together in a way in which is filled with unity. We don't want to uh, offend one another unnecessarily. We don't wish to uh, have individuals in the world say, man, look at how disjointed these individuals are. They're supposed to be one. How can they say they're one when they're always fighting with one another? And really, we just saw practically how the church gathered together in their great love and devotion to one another in their concern for one another's needs, their learning together, their gathering together for worship, their sharing of the common meals together, their sharing of the Lord's table together, just a beautiful picture of the church in love love with one another as they themselves were in love with their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue in Acts chapter 20, just as we saw a pattern of the church's love for one another, uh, we are also going to see a pattern for the ministry in which all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to have as believers. All of us have been called to a ministry unto the Lord through His church. We are called specifically in different applications, but we all have been called to serve the Lord Christ in our ministry unto Him. None of us can claim that we don't have a ministry unto the Lord. None of us can claim that, you know, I'm just going to consume when I come and gather as a member in the body of Christ. None of us can say, well, that's the work that all these individuals are to do. I'm going to just receive, 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 and when I have my fill, I'm going to go out to do whatever I want to do, and then when I get hungry again, I'm going to come and receive some more. That's not the case for anyone in the Christian life. Every single one of us as a ministry unto the Lord in which we are called to fulfill as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, as I have mentioned, as Paul comes before these elders here in Acts chapter 20, Paul, before he begins to instruct them in God's Word and to instruct them in how they are to both feed and provide for the flock in which God has entrusted to their care, Paul just sets the scene immediately in his first uh, statement to them in that they should follow the pattern that he himself set in his ministry unto the Lord there, that as they saw his life, as they saw his practice, his doctrine, his love for the church, it was a pattern in which he laid out before this church in order that they would be able to lead God's church and also to lead God's church in leading other individuals. 
If you go to uh, chapter 20, verse 18, really Paul just sets the scene right then and there to these individuals to say, I've got a lot to instruct you by. I've got a number of things that I need to get off my chest because if you go forward a few verses in verse 25, Paul says, I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to Jerusalem, and the Spirit has told me that I'm going to face suffering there. I don't think I'm going to see you again. I've got a lot that I need to tell you. But before I tell you these things, verse 18, he sa- it says, and when they came to them, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul is setting the pattern before them for the ministry work that he himself had done in order that they would be able to emulate the ministry in their own lives. And again, this is not just for the elders, this is for the whole church. As the elders are the representatives of the church in Ephesus, Paul is telling these elders, I set the pattern in ministry and you need to set the pattern for your own flock in order that they would also pattern their ministry after the ministry in which I have taken up. And before we begin to think that Paul is just focusing on making disciples of himself, you know, Paul's just a conceited individual, just says, do everything that I do because I know what's right. We must get that out of our minds because that's not what Paul is doing here. When Paul calls for people to imitate him or to pattern their lives after his own life, he can do so because he himself was patterning his life after the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would often say to the individuals who he wrote to in many of his letters, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As you have seen my life, as you have seen my doctrine, my love, uh, my sufferings, my trials, my worship, if you have seen my life, you have seen me seeking to emulate Christ in all that I have done, and so you ought to follow me as I follow Christ. You see, Paul was really saying to these elders here, as I was taking up my cross daily to follow him, they also are called to do the same. There's a pattern in which the Christian ministry must follow. And as we go into Acts chapter 20, really this is going to be a few part messages that we're going to look at in the pattern for Christian ministry. We're going to see that Paul, up to verse 24, really just covers all corners of Christian ministry. All all the corners of the Christian ministry are covered in just some six verses as Paul talks to these elders here. He says, as you are to follow after my ministry, you must follow it in these ways and according to these characteristics and lived out amongst these individual people groups. You see, in the Christian ministry, there are really four themes that we must uh, realize exist within our Christian ministry. And I'll give them to you now, and we're going to lay them all out over the next few weeks. But there's four things, four important things that we must note in our own Christian ministry to the Lord that these must be characteristics of our lives. In one sense, our ministry is unto the Lord, and Paul most definitely notes that to these individuals. In another sense, our Christian ministry is unto the church, to our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, in another sense, our Christian ministry is unto unbelievers. And then finally, our Christian ministry must focus on ourselves and how we view our own lives. There's a lot. There's a lot that Paul is going to get into here. And as I was thinking about how we could lay out this pattern for Christian ministry as it relates to God and to the church and to others, meaning unbelievers, and also to ourselves, I was trying to figure out how would I be able to present this to you in a way in which we would be able to understand the focus that Paul himself is trying to bring out before these Ephesian elders. And what I came to was this. Though there are really four uh, uh, individual characteristics that we are living out in our Christian ministerial life, being to God and to the church and to unbelievers and also to ourselves, there really is only one that gives life to all of the rest. 
As we think about our ministry as a Christian, we know that we are serving the Lord. We know that we are called to serve one another, and we are called to serve the unbelievers. And even in one sense, we are called to serve ourselves. There really is one service which gives life to all of the rest. And so I want us to emphasize that today in order that we would be able to rightly understand the pattern in which Paul lays out for Christian ministry that we ourselves must seek to emulate. This is the first pattern that Paul lays out here as he comes to these elders. As Paul comes to these elders here, he says, I've served the Lord, I've served you, I've served the unbelievers, and I've even served myself. But of utmost importance that no one can forget is that first and foremost, we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our application of service to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be very Not all of us are called to be leaders, but all of us have a ministry in which we are living out in the Christian life, and of utmost importance that we must not forget is that as we live out this ministry, it is unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We are serving the Lord Christ. Now, if we miss this point, all of our works of ministry become a self-service. What I mean is this is I can serve you, I can serve unbelievers, and I can even serve myself. But if I am not living out those services unto those parties in which I've mentioned, outside of first and foremost serving the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a self-seeking service. It is a service which seeks to honor myself. It is a service which becomes a social service at best. Because you see, the reality is, is if we are not first and foremost serving everything else because of our service first to the Lord Jesus Christ, our service is worthless. Our service is not Christian service. And that is because the Christian serves the Lord in all that he does. What follows is he will serve the Lord's body, he will serve the Lord's creation in the unbelievers, and he will also serve himself being a a, a child of God now adopted into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. They must also govern their lives out of their service to God. And so there's really a whole lot here, but again, our focus today is simply this. As we follow Paul's pattern for ministry, of utmost importance that we must see is his ministry was unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not serve himself. He did not serve the church, although he did, and we'll see that. First and foremost, he served the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that he did in public and in private. It all was a gift unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We must get this. As I have mentioned, if we do not get this, again, our Christian service is not Christian because it does not serve Jesus Christ. And really, as we think about this, as we begin to lay it out uh, before us from verse 17 to verse 19, this is really a wonderful task. This is wonderful that we get to serve the one who has saved us from our sins, that he has not merely just saved us from our sins, but he has given us a work to do as his own children, and he has given us gifts, he has given us resources, he has given us all that we need to this life, that, that we need in this life in order that we would be able to serve him thereby it. This is a high calling. This is a a wonderful calling. But we must also note, as Paul will note, that this this does not come to us without its own trials. You see, in our service to the Lord Jesus Christ, we note that this is a blessed, a blessed task that we have been given, but it is not without trials. 
And yet still we must serve him. We must serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We must serve the one who has saved us from our sins. The one who promises us everlasting life with him as we learned this morning as Pastor Richard was preaching about our bodily resurrection which is promised through the resurrection of our own Savior. We must serve the Lord in everything. Romans chapter 12 verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then you jump over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 24 to see that in our Christian ministry, in our Christian service to the Lord, there is no difference between really the sacred or the secular. Rather, everything that we do is a service unto God. In chapter 3 of Colossians in verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You see, Paul is laying out quite clearly that we are the Lord's. We are his servants. And going back to Acts chapter 20 in verse 19, Paul says, You know how from the first day that I was with you all, all that I did, everything that I did was a service to the Lord. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You see, the attitude of Paul must be the attitude of all Christians. It is not this self-serving attitude which says, you know, sometimes I'll serve the Lord and sometimes I need to serve myself. Sometimes, you know, I need a little bit of rest for myself. I need to do things on my own way. I don't need the Lord getting involved in this sort of business of my life. We must have the attitude that the Apostle Paul has where he is dominating his life with service to the Lord and only the Lord. You see, on numerous occasions, Paul himself, as he is writing to the churches, and you can read of these in many of the letters, Romans 1.1, you go to 1 Corinthians, you go into 2 Corinthians and then Thessalonians, Paul reminds the church of who he is as a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ to them. He is a doulos. He is a servant. He is a slave unto the Lord. He lays it out succinctly from the start with the churches that he writes to that he is a servant of the Lord Christ. He's just a servant. That's who he is. You say, who are you? I'm a servant. A servant of whom? I'm a servant of the Lord. You see, we must have this attitude because that is the reality of our new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of our lives. We have not just been saved unto him, but we have also been saved unto him as the Lord of our lives. He is the one who has called for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and to follow him. He is the one who has said to the individuals, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He is the Lord of our lives. He is the one in whom we serve and no one else. You see, I don't merely just serve you. I don't merely just serve unbelievers. I don't merely just serve myself. But in all that I do, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this is the same for you as well. You don't serve me. You don't serve one another. You don't serve unbelievers. You don't even serve yourself. You are serving the Lord Christ in all that you are doing. This ought to change our perspective on our lives. It must change the perspective on our lives. And it will if we take to heart this fact that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that our Christian ministry, which really does not uh, uh, delve into either the sacred or the secular, but rather is every single aspect of our lives, is of service to the Lord and nothing else, no one else. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can say, well, well, why is this the case? Why do I serve the Lord in everything that I do? Why does Paul come to these elders and say, you know your whole se- yourselves how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord? Why does Paul say he did everything amongst them as a service to the Lord? Well, it's because Jesus is Lord, but he's not just Lord. Jesus is Lord of all, and this is a point that the Scriptures constantly make known. You see, we don't just say that Jesus is Lord. I could say all day long Jesus is Lord, and if He's not, then it doesn't mean anything. You see, what God has said through His Word and through His actions amongst Jesus Christ is that, definitively speaking, Jesus is the Lord of all things. Not the Lord of some things, not the Lord of Sunday, or not the Lord of just, you know, some days that we have lived to Him. Rather, He is the Lord of all, and we must serve Him in all. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, amen, says, Jesus has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Revelation 3, verse 14, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Lord of God's creation. Acts chapter 10, verse 36 says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then finally, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is Lord, and His commands for the church are that they would follow Him, that they would serve Him, that they would do all things unto Him and Him alone. He commands it from us. He demands it from us because He is the Lord of our lives. Again, I referenced it already, but in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call Him Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see, we've sung those songs and wonderful songs that Coco picked to lead us through this time of worship where we're saying, take my life, lead me, Lord. Take my life, lead me, Lord. May my life be useful to Thee. We call Him Lord, but does that dominate our lives? Is He, as the Lord of our lives, is, is this a, 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 a dominant theme or is this merely just something in which we say because it is good to come off from our lips? You see, Jesus is Lord, and we proclaim Him as Lord, but we must live unto Him under His Lordship because this is who we are. We are His servants. And I'll say this from the start also as well. This is not burdensome for us. Some people might say, oh man, you're, you're, you're scaring me here. You're not encouraging me to serve the Lord here. It's not a burdensome thing for us to serve the Lord. Rather, it is a joyous thing in which we can do to come together and to serve the Lord. Reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to verse 49, we see that as such. It's not burdensome to serve the Lord. Rather, it is the most joyous thing that we can live out our lives in this life to do. Uh, it says in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 46 to verse 49, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. It's not burdensome for us to serve the Lord, rather quite the opposite. If we serve the Lord, we are on a firm foundation. It is those who do not serve the Lord who find themselves often shaken, who find themselves often uh, carried away by the trials that come in this life. It is unto those who do not serve the Lord that they find themselves left without a deliverer, left without any foundation, left without anyone in whom they can trust in. But to those who serve the Lord and whatever might come their way, Jesus says, you have a firm foundation in in, in me. You have one who you can trust. You have your deliverer. You will be kept from the trials in which this life often will bring your way. You will not be overcome by them. But note this as well, too, in this statement that Luke gives in Luke chapter 6, that service to the Lord, though it is a firm foundation, though it is one in which we can take hold of knowing that Jesus is our deliverer, it does not come without trials. And so as Paul lays out this pattern for Christian ministry to the Ephesian elders here, he tells them that he is a servant of the Lord. He tells them that he served the Lord in all that he did when he found himself there in, Ephes- in, in, uh, in the church in Ephesus, and he was there for about four and a half years. He says, you know my life. I serve the Lord in all that I have done. And now someone might say, now get ready to be blessed. You know, Paul's going to say, look at all the blessings that came my way. Look at all the wondrous things that came. You know, I got a nice house. You know, I got a nice big wagon. They didn't have cars back then. You know, I got everything that I ever wanted because I was serving the Lord. You would think that's what he's going to say. That's often how Christianity is presented. You come to Christ, everything's going to go well for you. You get to live your best life now, right, as they often say. Not the case. Paul says, listen, when I came to you and I served the Lord, you remember what happened to me. He is preparing them as a good shepherd does in order to serve the Lord continuously in their ministry as he finds himself leaving them and going into Jerusalem. And then also he'll be arrested in Jerusalem and make his way over to Rome. But we'll get to that uh, as we continue here in Acts chapter 20 and beyond. But initially, as he sets out here, and as we set out here as well too, we are servants of the Lord. It's a fact. We've laid it out clearly. It is a fact of the Christian life that we are servants of the Lord. And you say to me, what are some fruits of the servant of the Lord's life? How do I know that I'm serving the Lord? How how do I know that as I have said, I will serve the Lord, take my life, lead me, Lord? How do I know that my life is being led by the Lord Jesus Christ? How do I know that I'm not serving myself? How do I know that I'm not merely just serving you all? How do I know that I have a life that is a life lived of service to the Lord? Well, Paul gives a few characteristics of the servant of the Lord's life here. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a list in which we must understand is going to come if we faithfully give ourselves to the task of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, these, uh, this, this list of these fruits of Paul's service to the Lord are just in verse 19, and there's three of them here. Well, there's, there's three of them here, and he says, when I served the Lord, this is in verse 19, I served him with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You say, what are the fruits of Paul's ministry of serving the Lord there in Ephesus? Humility, meaning it was an attack against his pride. He also served the Lord with tears, and this is not to be meaning happy tears. These were tears of sadness, tears of great grief, 
tears that came on a result of a number of different issues, and we'll get into those in a few moments. But also, he says, there was persecutions that I faced as I served the Lord at the hands of the Jews, at the plots of the Jews. And so thinking about this as we set out to understand this pattern that Paul lays out for the Christian ministry, he says quite clearly, I'm a servant of the Lord. We must understand quite clearly we are servants of the Lord in all that we do. But even more so than that, we must also understand that the fruits of the Christian who is serving the Lord often will find themselves looking much like how Paul's life looked. In the first sense, we see that a servant of the Lord must serve the Lord in humility, They must walk towards the Lord in humility. They must see that it is not them whom they are serving. It is not others whom they are serving, but rather it is the Lord Christ whom whom they are serving. And we read again, and we're just going to keep hitting this verse because this is really what the text is for us today. He says, I was serving the Lord with all humility. Doesn't this confront your sinful nature as you hear of it? As you hear, I'm a servant of the Lord, and then I hear this other statement which says, I'm serving Him with all of humility. Doesn't this just attack your pride? I know it does mine. Doesn't this just attack your pride where you're thinking to yourself, okay, I've got to serve the Lord. Okay, that's good, but I've got to serve Him with humility also? You mean that I can't have this duality of service to Him? I can't worry about myself sometimes? Never? It's always the Lord's? I am humble before the Lord in everything? You see, this is the problem that man has faced from the beginning. Everything is about him. Everything is about me. My pride says, oh, I know what the Lord has said. I'm not going to eat of that tree. But then Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? And then I go and take of that fruit and I eat of it and I sin. And my pride constantly condemns me because of my foolish, sinful nature in which I have. You see, Paul says, if you are going to be a servant of the Lord, you must understand that first and foremost, you must come to Him in humility. You must serve Him with all of the humility in which you have. You must allow for it to take hold of your lives and not allow for the sinful desires of the flesh to overcome you when you serve. Now, this is especially important to those who are in what we might call the uh, public Christian ministry, you know, preachers and teachers and those who have a congregation in whom they serve. It's especially important that they walk in humility towards the Lord, but this is important for everyone who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us must walk in humility unto the Lord as we are called to serve Him in any capacity. I don't care what capacity in which you are serving the Lord in, you must walk in humility towards the Lord. You see, Paul learned early on to walk in humility unto the Lord. And we follow Paul's life going back to Acts chapter 9, or before that in Acts chapter 8, we see that Paul thought he had it all figured out. As an unbeliever, Paul himself said, I am zealous for God. I am persecuting the church because these people are not following God. These people are following the Antichrist. They're not following, they're following Jesus here, and Jesus needs to be just rid from the face of the earth. As the Pharisees and the rest of the people crucified him on the cross, Paul continued that work after the crucifixion. Paul in Acts chapter 8 was killing the church. He was killing the Lord's people. He was arresting them, dragging them out of their homes, men, women, and children, putting them on trial, and allowing for them to stand trial on the charge of blasphemy, which was given the sentence of death through stoning because Paul was saying that these people were blaspheming God. But yet on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, the Lord appeared to Paul and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
He calls Paul out in his sinfulness. And immediately there, when he was saved from his sins, being, uh, uh, seeing, seeing the, the resurrected Christ, his life totally transformed. No longer was he serving to destroy the work of the Lord, but rather he was a servant of the Lord, and he surrendered everything to him. The Lord taught Paul quite quickly what service unto him actually looks like. It's not you get saved and you just get to do whatever you want. It's not you get saved, I got my get-out-of-jail-free card, so if I sin, no worries, the Lord's got me, He's covered me. You know, often people will come to the Lord, you know, they say, the Lord's going to give me my best life now, the Lord's going to uh, give me whatever I want, I'm going to have great health, I'm going to have a great life. Who's serving who there? We often make the Lord out to be our servant when the reality is quite reversed. We are the Lord's servant. He is not our servant. The Lord does not serve us. Rather, we ourselves are called to serve Him. You see, Paul was just totally the Lord's, and he served Him with all humility. You think about Paul's life, and, and there are a number of examples we could go to, but turn back to Acts chapter 16 just for a moment. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is planning on serving the Lord in evangelism. And we've talked about this. This, this is the task in which all of us are called to do as individuals who have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are evangelists. We are those who are going and taking the message of the good news of the gospel. Paul's set out to do this. He's been sent out by the church, and he's finding himself, you know, going into these different places, and he's sharing the gospel with people. But he comes to this portion where he has this plan. He says, Lord, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to evangelize here. We pick up that story in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. You see, Paul had this plan. He had done all of his ministry work, and uh, he had went back to Jerusalem. They had the Jerusalem Council, and he had went into the other churches in Phrygia and Galatia. This is where he had previously planted the church. And he gets this idea. He says, Lord, I'm going to go over to Asia. And so he's making his way to Asia. And as he's on his way there, what happens is the Holy Spirit says, Paul, you're not going to go there. And, and, and Paul doesn't even bat an eye. He says, okay, where do you want me to go? So the Spirit doesn't really give him where he needs to be going, but you pick it up in verse uh, 7. It says, and when they had gone up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Again, it's like, Lord, I'm serving you here. I, I want to go where you would have me to go. Tell me where I need to go. And the Lord says, I'm not going to tell you where you need to go. Just keep going, and I'll tell you when you get there. And so Paul, being a servant of the Lord, says, okay, I, it's not in my pride. You know, I, I think this is a good idea, probably where I should go, but the Lord tells me to go somewhere else, so I will. So passing by Mycenae, this is verse 8, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, Paul recognized the humility that a servant of the Lord has. This was not an easy thing for Paul to be having to go to all of these different places. After all, there was no easy travel that was happening back then. He was traveling through mountainous regions where there were robbers and people who were trying to kill him, and he was getting sick. He was finding himself often uh, beaten down by the elements. And he's going to all of these places, and, and the Lord just keeps saying, not there, Paul, just keep going. I'll tell you where you need to go when you get there. This is a humility. This says, Lord, wherever you have me to go, whatever you have me to face, I will go. You see, the Christian must get to the point in their lives when they can simply say, as Paul has said, and all the servants of the Lord has, have said, 
really we see this emulated from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This must be the rally cry of all Christians in our service unto the Lord. In our Christian ministry, our rally cry is not, I'll do it tomorrow. It's not, maybe send that person, but rather, here I am, send me, Lord. We are His servants, and in our humility unto Him, we do as He has called for us to do. You see, that's what Jesus calls us to as His disciples. It is a life of surrender unto Him. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Yet often it is quite the opposite. People become saved and they think that the Lord needs to serve them, or rather they think that they need to reform the Lord. They say, well, this is not really working out what the Lord has planned and what the Lord has been doing for all of these years, and so I'm going to reform the Lord's ministry a little bit. You know, I know what the Word says, and I I understand it. I I read it. It's clear. I I understand this, but I don't really think that that's going to work for this particular group, and so I'm going to do it my way. You see, rather than people just saying as the Lord calls them into ministry again in any capacity, they just say, okay, I'll go, but on my terms. This must not be for us as believers in the Lord. What He calls for us to do, we must do it. And if we find ourselves called into ministry, again, in any capacity, we don't need to change the Lord and what He has done. Rather, we just need to maintain the status quo of faithfulness unto the Lord as His church has often done. And yet, how often it is the case that we forget this simple truth in our pride. We say, you know, this is not the Lord's ministry. This is, this is my ministry. Or this is not the Lord's program for the church. This is my program. This is not, you know, the Lord's church. Rather, this is my church. Or this is not the Lord's position. This is my position. Or, you know, the list can go on and on. This is not the Lord's money. This is my money. This is not the Lord's time. This is my time. This me, 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 where it's all about us when the reality is it's not. It is the Lord's, everything, every single thing that we have, all of our possessions, all of our time, all of our resources, all of the ministries in which we have been called to do are the Lord's, and we serve Him in those ministries. Now, there are often two extremes which we see in this in the negative. Two extremes, and we see them on what may be termed the two different types of Christian service to the Lord. In one sense, there is the Christian service to the Lord which is in the public realm. It's in this public realm, you know, those individuals who are publicly presenting the Lord and their ministers or preachers or whatever you want to call them, these are individuals who are in the public ministry. And what often happens when an individual walks in pride rather than humility towards the Lord is they become tyrants. I'm sure you've dealt with them before. There is this negative result that happens to an individual who gets in ministry and they become a tyrant. It's not the Lord's ministry. This is my ministry. And if you don't like it, there's the door. They're tyrants. They are individuals who are just really impossible to work with. But on the other sense, there are those who are in Christian ministry who we could term as those who do mainly the the behind-the-scenes type of work unto the Lord. And what happens to them often, and I speak from experience of this, is that they become resentful. They become resentful. And so you have these two extremes here when it comes to serving the Lord with humility when our, when our pride attacks us. It is that if we are in a public form of ministry, we become tyrants out of our pride. And if it's in the private form of ministry, we become uh, what the word is resentful because we feel like no one sees what we are doing. These stem from pride, not humility. 
You see, there are those who are in the public ministry who have the attitude of tyranny where they say, this is my ministry and they just got to do what I say. What does First Peter tell, or what does Peter tell the elders of the churches all throughout Asia, which are scattered? First Peter chapter 5, verse 3 says, you are to not domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Those in public ministry must not become tyranny. Uh, those who are just dictators or individuals who are trying to rule over individuals, but rather they serve as an example to the flock. Many times you might hear a person in leadership say, do as I say, not as I do. I'm sure you've heard that. That's a terrible leader. Uh, that's, a, that's an absolutely terrible leader who says, do as I say, not as I do. What they're saying is they are not equipped to lead you. Rather, one who is a leader should say both, you know, do as I say and do as I do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, just as Paul himself was saying. You say, why is it a bad leader who says, do as I say, but not as I do? Well, because it fails to take up the leadership in which the Lord Jesus Christ led by when he was in his earthly ministry. Again, if we are to imitate Christ in our service unto Christ, we must imitate Him in the way in which He lived His life in His earthly ministry. As a leader, as the Son of Man, in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many, so are those who are in public positions of Christian leadership must be examples to the flock. They must be examples to the world. They must be examples to others who are in Christian leadership. They must be those who are setting the example. But what often happens is they just say, just follow me. Just follow me. Do what I say. Do what I say. And if you don't like it, again, there's the door. You can go somewhere else. This is my ministry. This is my place. This is my church. I built this. Me, 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 me. You know, always the type. There's no humility in that. That is an individual who is unqualified for the ministry, really. You see, as I realize my leadership position here as a shepherd of the church, I must never forget that ultimately I am just an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am accountable to Him. And if I rule with tyranny here, or if I rule as a dictator here, or Pastor Richard rules as a dictator here, we're not merely responsible to you. You'll probably fire us for that. We're responsible to the Lord for that. And the Lord will judge us for that. Again, not to condemnation, but rather He will discipline us for failing to uphold the ministry in which He has called for us to do. As a leader within the church, we must understand that it is not my ministry, it is not my board, it is the Lord's, and I merely serve Him as He has placed me in this position. Now, on the other extreme, again, those who are really behind-the-scenes type of individuals, what often happens, if you're not serving the Lord in humility, doing the behind-the-scenes work, and whatever that looks like, you are going to become resentful. Again, I speak from experience in this. I've not always been a preacher. I've not always been a shepherd in the church. I often was one who served behind the scenes. And if I failed to realize that I was doing my service to the Lord, I would often become resentful, you know? Nobody sees me. Nobody cares. No one appreciates what I'm doing here. They don't care what I'm doing here. I should just stop doing this here because nobody even cares. Would they even realize if I'm gone? You know, all of these prideful thoughts that an individual can have when they are serving at the church. You know, they're often serving and doing all these different mundane tasks, and nobody notices them. People often overlook them, and, and they often are doing their own thing, and they look like they're having a bunch of fun while I'm here sweeping the floors or, or cleaning up the steps or whatever the case might be, and just, you're just resentful. You're like, oh, man, they don't even care about what I'm doing here. Let me tell you a quick antidote to that. The quickest antidote to that is for you to remember that you're not serving them. 
You're not serving me. You're serving the Lord. And the Lord sees you, and the Lord will reward you in the work in which you have done for Him. Really, that perspective in ministry could have you do anything, to face anything and to serve anyone. If you realize that you are serving the Lord, you will find yourself serving in ways in which you have never imagined. But if you are serving yourself or serving others, seeking the praise of man, you will not serve in the way in which the Lord would have for you to serve. You see, the Lord sees you in your service to Him. The Lord is pleased with you in your service to Him. And the Lord will reward you in time for the service you do unto Him. Remember this promise from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, when you find yourself becoming a little bit resentful in your service here at the church. He says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. God will not overlook it. You know, you think about, wow, man, these people don't care about what I'm doing here. I should just go somewhere else where I'm more appreciated. Those same people, when you go to that same place, you're going to have that same resentful attitude when you're worried about what other people are thinking. You serve the Lord, and the Lord is not unjust. The people you serve may be unjust, but the Lord is not unjust, and He will not overlook the work that you have done. And so you can serve with all humility, knowing that the Lord calls you to it, and He will reward you for what you have done. And so then, one who serves the Lord serves Him in all humility, but also we must expect that our service to the Lord will not be without its trials. Really, there are two trials that we see here in Acts chapter 20 that Paul finds himself facing, and we'll look at them under this same heading, that the serving of the Lord comes with trials. It often does. And these trials are two, in two forms. Again, in verse 19, it says, Paul, Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You realize that serving the Lord, when you serve the Lord, when you serve the Lord in humility, you are going to have trials. It will come. They will come. It is inevitable that this will indeed come. You see, so often we wish to erase this doctrine from our minds. It's this idea that, well, I come to the Lord and my life's just going to be perfect. And I'm never going to cry again. Everyone's going to like me. My life's going to be perfect. It's just going to be great. Paul, a servant of the Lord, can say quite clearly that is not the case. He lays it out clearly. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't water it down. He says, listen, you know from my ministry, when I was with you in Ephesus for those four and a half years, my ministry was often acquainted with tears and with trials or persecution at the hands of the Jews. And so not only must we understand that the fruits of serving the Lord comes with humility, but the fruits of serving the Lord come with trials. I'll give you a few verses that, that illustrate this outside of what Paul has said. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Acts 14, verse 22, Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, this does not mean that we should be seeking trials. We should not be seeking tears. We should not be seeking persecution. Rather, it is just going to happen. The inevitable outcome of our life of service to the Lord means that we are going to face trials. 
Now, in this verse here, it's just one verse. Paul doesn't go into specifics because these people were with him. They knew what Paul went through. And what we can do, because we're not there, is we can survey Paul's time in Ephesus and also looking even in other chapters of the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, as Paul wrote those two letters while he was in Ephesus, we can survey those to see what Paul is actually talking about. You know, these men, they see Paul and they say, that's right, I remember you crying about that, or that's right, I remember the Jews doing that to you there. We don't, we, don't, we don't know because we weren't there, but we have the Word of God which has been given to us to show us that this is the reality of Paul's life. Paul's not just making this up. Paul's not just, you know, uh, trying to uh, make things to appear to be what they are not, to say, look at how much I suffered for the Lord, look at how great my ministry was. Paul says, you know what happened to me. I was crying a lot, and I was dealing with a lot, a lot of persecutions. And so first, we look at the first trial in which he faced, and that was often the trials of tears. Tears. You say, as a Christian, I should expect to have tears? Absolutely, if you care about the Lord's work. If you care about the Lord's work, if you are concerned with those who are lost and do not know the Lord, your ministry will have tears. You see, just as Jesus Christ was a man of constant sorrows, as we read of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, so also will be his servants. We see one of Jesus' examples of his own tears in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Lord was often brought to grief over his rejection that he faced from the people, his, the Jews, those who were his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so also was it the case for those who took up the Lord's ministry. They're those who took after the ministry of the Lord and served the Lord that they had tears in their service to him. You say, what are things that would lead us to, 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 uh, to cry in our ministry? And I'm not talking about some superficial emotionalism here. But what, what is going to happen in my ministry to the Lord that's going to lead me to become emotional if I'm concerned enough over what is happening in my ministry work? Well, there's three things that led Paul to tears. Three things led Paul to tears. First, it was the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. Those were his kinsmen according to the flesh. The second thing that led Paul to tears was immature Christians. And the third thing that led Paul to tears were false teachers. Going to Romans chapter 9, we see the first one that I have mentioned. Paul was often led to tears while knowing that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the people who he loved, the people who he cared for, this constant realization that they were perishing without Christ led him to tears. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 5, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul was led to tears often by the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. Why? Why should we be led, by, led to tears by the rejection of the gospel from unbelievers? Because they are perishing. 
This is not just some uh, uh, short thing in which people are going to die. And, you know, we live this life and we, we make this, uh, this story up which says, when you die, you're going to appear before God. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, you are going to be condemned to an eternity in hell apart from saving faith in Him. And this is not just something that we just throw around in this life and saying, well, it's just all going to be over in the next. This is the reality of these people's lives, that as they reject the message of the gospel, they have no hope. They have absolutely no hope in the life that is to come. They are going to stand under God's judgment for all of eternity in hellfire. They are going to be burned by the wrath of God for all of eternity with weeping and gnashing of teeth because they have rejected the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this led Paul to tears. He wept over the Jews who did not believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Do we ever get to that point? You know, I I wonder if we get to that point. And you say, well, it's not my personality to do that. Okay. But internally, do you get to the point where you are in anguish over the lost who are perishing? When an unbeliever dies, do you rejoice that they've gotten what they deserved? Or do you mourn because you know that they do not know Jesus Christ and they will be damned to an eternity in hell because they have been lost without Him? You see, I'm not asking us if we manufacture crocodile tears of manipulation. You say, oh, would you just believe Christ? You know how the preachers might be doing that. You know, tears are streaming down their eyes and trying to manipulate people to a conversion. I'm not asking us to do that. But does there come to a point where, we well, where, where just sorrow wells up within our soul when we are rejected and sharing the gospel to someone to where tears fill our eyes and we weep over the lost state of those individuals? You see, if we truly understand who the Lord is, if we are truly serving the Lord, we will weep over those who are lost especially over those who are our people, really. Not in the sense that you know, there are separate people groups, but Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. The Pharisees, he, he, he was of their sect, of their party. Paul was one who loved his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, and it bothered him that they did not know the Lord. Do we, are we bothered when our family members don't know the Lord? Are we bothered when those that we care about don't know the Lord? Do we care that they don't know the Lord? Do we weep over them? It's a question which we must consider. It's a question which we must consider. And if we are not weeping over them, again, not in this superficial crocodile tear type sense, but rather is there an anguish in our hearts for them? And as that anguish is in our hearts, I can guarantee we're not going to stay silent. We're going to tell them about who Jesus Christ is in order that they could be saved. You see, Paul was, was, was sorry about the fact that these individuals were perishing. That is something that we can be sorry about as well, too, for them. But even more so than that, Paul, I think, would weep over the lost, those Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, simply because they did not know the Lord. It's as simple as that. Forget about their eternal state. Forget about that for a moment. Paul would weep over his brothers not knowing Jesus because they just did not know Jesus, the Savior, the one who is our great friend, the one who loves us in a way in which no one can love us, the one who has forgiven us, the one who has died for us, they don't know him. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted that as much as he wanted it for himself. He wanted that for others. And we also ought to. As we commune with our Savior and as we are filled with joy in our communion with God, we want that for other individuals. And if they don't have it, we can weep over their state. Secondly, Paul also wept over immature believers, individuals who were believers, but they were just carnal. 
They weren't growing in the Lord. They were not responding to His teachings. They just were continually living in the flesh, and Paul wept over them also. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he writes to the church at Corinth, "'For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you.'" In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he, he mentions all of these trials that he faces. And he concludes all of these trials. He's shipwrecked. He's bitten by snakes. He finds himself being arrested. He was stoned, left for dead. All of those trials. And yet he summarizes all of his trials with this statement. You know, I could go through all of that, but also there's one other thing that he saw as just a constant burden on his life. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Do we find ourselves becoming concerned over the immature believers that we might know? Do we find ourselves coming to tears sometimes because of their immaturity, because of their carnality, because of the fact that they have one foot following the Lord and one foot following the world? Do we find ourselves concerned about them? You see, after all, we don't merely serve them. We serve the Lord. And if they're not serving the Lord, we should be concerned about that for their sake and for the Lord's sake. We want them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they are immature, well then, we, we must find ourselves in the same position that Paul would find himself in also, concerned for them. And it may lead us to tears. It may lead us to tears because we may have to have some hard conversations with them. We may have to have some conflict with them, which we don't like to have with individuals, let alone in the world. We don't want to have conflict with those that we love, those who are our brothers, but yet it may come. We may need to call them out of their sin and say, what are you doing with your life? Why are you allowing for your life to continually be just totally opposite of what God is calling for you to do? This may lead to tears as they reject us and say, ah, don't worry about it here. You worry about yourself. Stop being so serious, Paul. Stop being so serious, Dakota. What are you worried about here? Just let me live my life. That should bring us to tears as we see these people not living their lives in the fullness of the knowledge of the Lord. There's a preacher who once said that, according to his, uh, to his congregation, he, he told them, he says, you know, I love when, I, when you say that you enjoyed my sermon that I've preached, but he says, what I would love more is to see you live out what I have just preached to you in your lives. Paul would say the same thing as well, and I concur with that statement. I love the encouragement when you say great sermon or I enjoyed that sermon, but what encouraged me even more is to see you applying that to your lives, to see you growing, because my purpose is not for you to compliment me after my sermon, but rather is to equip you for the works of ministry that God Himself has called you into. I rejoice over your maturity, but if you are immature, that may lead me to have some tears. Now, I haven't had any over that, but it may, and it may lead you to have some tears as well. But also Paul cried over false teachers. So he cried over those who, were, uh, who had rejected the gospel. He cried over those who were immature. And he also cried over those who were the false teachers. In second, or actually in Acts chapter 20, going forward just a few verses in verse 30 and 31, he says, And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the, the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. With tears he admonished them, be on the watch for false teachers. Why? Why? Why should false teachers bother us? Because they are drawing the flock away from the shepherd. They are drawing the sheep away from the shepherd. And as those who are to care for the body of Christ, if someone comes and drags the sheep away, 
that should make us angry. You ever have angry tears? That's probably the tears that Paul had. Angry. Angry that these people were drawing people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 18-19, Paul says, For many, talking of Paul's teachers, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So Paul cried a lot. Paul cried. As Paul was serving the Lord, this led to many tears in his ministry, but also it led to many persecutions. Again, we take up verse 19 again. He says, He was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Not only did he have his really internal struggles, tears often come internally, but externally he also faced trials, persecution at the plot of the Jews. Now we can look through Acts, beginning at Acts chapter 9 when Paul was first converted. He constantly was facing persecution. The Jews were constantly trying to kill him. Even the Gentiles were constantly trying to kill Paul. Paul says, listen, in my ministry unto the Lord, it was not without its trials. You know what the Jews often did to me. You know what the Gentiles often did to me. Just looking back from Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, Paul was chased out of town by the Jews. And then he gets to the next town. There's another Jewish synagogue there. He goes there, preaches the gospel to them. And they go a step further. They chase him out of town. And when they chase him out of town, they stone him and leave him for dead. Going forward to Acts chapter 16, when Paul finds himself in Philippi, he finds himself being imprisoned, arrested for proclaiming the message of the gospel. And going forward into Acts chapter 17, what happens to him then? Was it all great? Absolutely not. He gets to Thessalonica, and the Jews chase him out of there, and he goes into Berea, and those Jews from Thessalonica traveled to Berea, found him there, tried to kill him there, so he had to flee over into Athens and was there for a little while. You know, the, the, the temperature of the, of the persecution died down a a little bit, and he makes it over into Ephesus, and he gets to Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel there, and he's in the synagogues proclaiming the good news. Three months later, the Jews run him out of town there to where he has to go to the hall of Tyrannus. Paul was constantly faced with persecution. It just was inevitable in his Christian life. As he served the Lord, he was going to be persecuted. The same is true for us as well. As we serve the Lord, as we serve Him with humility, we must also understand that our service to the Lord comes in trials. Now, someone might say to me, boy, you are really discouraging me to serve the Lord here. Why would I want to do this? Why would I get myself involved with this? Isn't it true that the Christian, you know, you come to the Lord and it's your best life now, you get everything you want? No, not in this life. Now, there may be blessings which come, and I'm not saying that there are not, but there is also this reality that we in the Christian life are going to face trials. This is not doom and gloom. This is not me saying, oh, you better be watching out for this, trying to scare you into serving the Lord. Rather, this is simply the reality of the Christian life. In our service to the Lord, we will face trials. And we need to see this as such in order that it does not affect our Christian witness. Because what often happens, and we see it happen in the United States, why are we not persecuted? Well, because our Christian witness is nowhere to be seen oftentimes. We will be persecuted as we proclaim the message of the gospel. But in this, you know, universalistic society in which we live where everybody just loves one another and, you know, they just don't want to offend anyone or they're worried about offending someone, we often hide our Christian witness because we are afraid of the response that people are going to give to us. You see, we're afraid of being mocked and so we don't evangelize. Wanting to fit in, we participate in sin. Afraid of losing our status, we do not speak up. You know, instead of letting our light shine, we hide it under a bushel. 
Who are we serving? Are we serving man or are we serving the Lord? You see, if we're serving man, then we ought to continue doing that. If they don't want to hear what we say, okay, we won't tell you what we say. But we serve the Lord, and the Lord has called us to proclaim the message of the gospel to all nations, to everyone. No one is exempt. We don't just go to the people we like. We go to everyone, knowing that the Lord has not exempted us from that. You see, if we want to fit in and we participate in sin, again, what type of fellowship are we to have with the world when we have fellowship with Christ? We're the Lord's. We're not the world. And so we must not seek to fit in the world if it means that we are going to lose our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, church, we are the Lord's. And if He calls us to suffer for His sake, we must not say, you know, find another servant, but rather, here am I. Now, we're not going to put ourselves in positions to suffer unwillingly. We're not, you know, as we looked in Acts chapter 19, remember when the riot was happening and Paul wanted to go into the riot because uh, uh, Aristarchus and Secundus had found themselves being stuck in the center of the riot and the brothers were like, uh, well, Paul wanted to go and the brothers said, Paul, God kept you from that. Don't go there right now. We're not going to put ourselves in positions to be mocked or to be abused. That's foolishness. First Peter chapter 3 and chapter 4 warns against that. That's a self-service. You see, you want to be a martyr. You want to be remembered by people for how faithful you were to the Lord. That's really a self-serving type of service to the Lord. Rather, if the Lord calls for us to suffer for His sake, we must be willing to do so. Now, I am sure that Paul wrestled with this reality. Often this reality, like, do I really want to do this? Is this really what's going to happen? You know, this idea that, that, that says, man, if I serve the Lord, I'm going to suffer. What is it all worth? You know, people might be saying to Paul, you know, if his friends, they say, Paul, you're, you're suffering all this time. Why don't you just simmer down a little bit here? Don't take things so seriously, you know. You know, you're just an enthusiast. Just leave those people alone for a little while. They're only, they're only mad at you because you keep talking to them. Just don't talk to them anymore. That could not be. You see, Paul was not serving man. Paul was serving the Lord. And we are serving the Lord also. And if our service to the Lord leads to man's rejection or anything else, we will serve the Lord. Now, why? Why do we do this? Do we like to be punished? Do we like for people to not like us? Do we like to be individuals who are seen as, you know, uh, unlikable or individuals who are rude or, or who are intolerant or unsensible? Do we like that? I don't. I don't like people rejecting me. Absolutely not. It's not fun. It's not fun at all. You often say, man, I wish these people would like me a little bit more, but not for the sake of the Lord. Why do we do this? Well, it goes back to what Pastor Richard preached this morning. You see, we serve the Lord in this life. We do. And there are going to be trials that will come our way. But we have an ever-present hope that this life is not the end. This is not the end. This is only a passing of time. This is only a moment of time in which we pass through where the Lord, when He deems fit to call us to Himself, will call us to Himself and He will bring us into His glorious rest. You see, Paul reflected on this a lot. I'm sure of it because he writes about it a lot in his letters. Why suffer for the Lord's sake? Why continue to suffer for the Lord's sake? I'll give you a few examples of why he would do this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 18, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that his grace extends to more and more people that may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why suffer for the Lord? Why? Is it just because it's fun? No, it's not fun. We suffer for the Lord because He is worthy, and we know that this is not the end. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of, this, sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Peter carries the same sentiment in his letters also, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 to 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, we are servants of the Lord. We are. We are His servants. And as servants of the Lord, it is a call to a life of humility And it is a call to a life that may include trials as we surrender our lives for the Lord's sake. But it is not a life that that does not have a purpose. It is not a life that will one day cease and will just say, man, this was not worth it at all. It is a life that is a life worth living because not only is God glorified, but also He will draw us to Himself where we will be forever in His rest. Are you a servant of the Lord? Are you serving Him? Are you one who can say, I am serving the Lord? And if you have not been serving the Lord, can you say from this passage here in Acts chapter 20 where Paul speaks that you will serve the Lord because you know that you are His servant? Or even better yet, more pointedly from the example here before us today, does the company that you keep show an example for your own life to be a servant of the Lord? You see, Paul here is laying out this example to the Ephesian elders. He's saying, look at my life, look at my ministry, now emulate that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, all of the elders there could gather and look at Paul's life as an example to follow. And as Paul is reminding the believers here of his example to follow, he is also telling them or warning them about the company in which they keep. He'll later tell them, there's going to be people from amongst your midst who are going to try to draw you away from the Lord. Do not follow their example. Do not be in fellowship with these individuals. Rather, come out from among them. Do not have any fellowship with these individuals. Can we say that those in the company in which we keep are those who are giving us an example to follow? Are they leading us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Or can we say also, in the other hand, that these individuals that I am following are actually influencing my life in the negative? I don't have individuals in my life who are mentoring me or leading me unto the Lord, but rather they're leading me into all of these foolish things, these sinful things. You see, we must give no room for Satan or sin in our lives. 
You remember when Peter sought to prevent Christ from going to the cross? What did Christ say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. He was not going to have fellowship with one who was going to draw him away from doing the will of his Father, and neither should we. We are not going to have fellowship. We must not have fellowship with those who are going to lead us away from following our Lord, from serving the Lord. Paul says quite practically in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so as we examine ourselves from this passage today, sure, we can examine to say, am I a servant of the Lord? But we can also say, do I, in the company that I keep, do I have individuals within my company who are influencing me negatively for Christ? You see, what I mean by saying all of this is that we must not be influenced by those who are not influencing, influenced by Christ. We must not be following the example of those who are not following the example of Christ. The reality is, is that few of us are leaders. It's just the reality. It's not a bad thing that you're not a leader. Few of us have been called by God to be leaders. And so if you are not a leader, who are you following? Who is the example? Who is, who is within your life that you can say, this person is an example that I seek to follow? And not because of their own life, but rather because they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as you are being led in the Christian life, being discipled in the Christian life, you must choose your leaders carefully. That is why as you went to vote for me or Pastor Richard to become uh, shepherds of you all, you considered it very carefully. It was a five-year process for me starting to preach here until I became officially ordained into the ministry here. Now, it doesn't always have to be that long, but choose your leaders carefully. And this does not mean just as you gather in the local church, but who are you watching on television? What pastors are you following? Who is shepherding you? Choose your leaders carefully. Ensure that they are leading you to follow Jesus Christ and not seeking to gain you as merely a follower unto themselves. You see, ensure that those who who you prop up into leading you in your life are first and foremost following Christ. God has given you, as the church, individuals who you can prop up into Christian leadership and Christian ministry, elders, and we're going to learn a lot about elders here, shepherds of the flock, those who are called to give oversight unto you. Ensure that those individuals who you are putting in a position of leadership over your life are those that you can follow their example and make sure that they are leading you by example as well and not just telling you to do something but actually doing it themselves. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to look considerably at that, but what God demands of the leaders and those who He places in charge to both feed and protect the flock. But in the meanwhile, consider, consider who is an example in your own life. But for those of us who are leading, I close with this. Are you pointing people to Christ? Are you pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who you are leading? Now, no, no, you may not be called into the position of an elder. I'm not saying in that sense, but all of us have individuals in our lives who we may be leading. If we're in Sunday school or kids' ministry, are we serving as an example for those children to see Christ? Not me, but Christ. Are we leading them to Christ? As we lead them, as we serve them, are we serving Christ first and foremost? You see, I mention this especially to us, those of us who are in positions of leadership, because there is a propensity to get puffed up with pride in our leadership. There is. It is the reality, and many leaders have been carried away by this propensity to pride. And so in both senses, if you are following, if you are a follower, ensure that you are choosing your leaders carefully. And if you are a leader, ensure that you are first leading others to Christ, that you are actually first and foremost totally leading people to Christ and not to yourself. 
You see, we must all examine our lives today as I examine my ministry unto Him, as you are called to examine your ministry unto Him as well. Church, I close us now with just a, a, a time for us to really reflect upon the ministry in which we have been called to in our lives. And so as I pray, as I pray, you all with bowed head as well, be praying unto the Lord that He would teach you yourselves what it means to be a humble servant to Him today to be a humble servant to the one who is your Lord and who is your God. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that we have to come to consider your glorious word. Lord, I thank you for each individual who is here today who is yours, Lord, those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you have called each one of them into Christian ministry. Many of us here uh, may not even know what our ministry is, and if that's the case, God, I pray that you would reveal that to them now by your Spirit. But for those of us who know what we have been called to do, Lord, may we do it with all diligence. May we do it with all boldness, knowing that we're not serving man, we're not serving ourselves. Rather, we are serving you, God. God, we are your servants. God, I am your servant, and I ask that you would give me the grace that I need to serve you faithfully as you have led the Apostle Paul to serve you faithfully and as you have led everyone, everyone who is yours to serve you faithfully. God, such a privilege to be able to come and to consider your word today. I pray for each individual here, Lord, that they would be reflecting upon your word, Lord, that, um, that they would just really reconsider uh, their ministry unto you, God constantly reflecting upon it because of this propensity that all of us have to, to just not even think about what we're doing, but rather just to just do stuff just for the sake of doing. God, may we never be a church that just does stuff for the sake of doing, but rather we be, may we be a church which is on fire for you, serving you, serving you in all things, in all capacities, in order that you may be receiving all the glory and honor and praise which is yours alone. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.